You're listening to Lies and Half-Truths, tales written and performed by A.P. Weber. Today is the beginning of a new epic journey. The Adventures of Woodrow the Wicked. As I mentioned before, I wrote this book some time ago, but have since reworked it into a series of novels. I'm excited about how it turned out, and I'm premiering this new version on the podcast for you all. We'll be starting, of course, with book one, The Moon Shadow. From the back of the cover, under a broken moon, in Woodrow's world, the moon is a shattered disk in the vaulted sky. It serves as a constant reminder of his own broken life. At 15, he's seen his genius father murdered and his hometown burned to the ground. He escaped the destruction on his father's greatest invention, a mysterious airship. But everywhere he goes, a bad reputation precedes him. Woodrow the Wicked, they call him. They say he killed his father and burned his town. Now Woodrow and his ragtag airship crew find themselves relentlessly pursued across a fantastic world by a family of aristocratic sociopaths bent on killing Woodrow and obtaining the ship for their own sinister gain. Will Woodrow become the wicked boy the world thinks he is? Will he survive to rise above his reputation? And now... Lies and Half-Truths presents The Moonshadow, first book of the adventures of Woodrow the Wicked. Prologue. The wind used to make a delicate rustling noise when it swept up the bluff from the sea and set the brittle autumn leaves and pine needles to dancing. But the trees of Riley Island stood naked now, a forest of charcoal black spines spearing the bleak sky. In a clearing surrounded by this army of dead wood, three young women worked on all fours, carving lines into the ash and soot that blanketed the island. They had been working since dawn and continued on now as the darkness drank up the light. Strange geometric patterns and long antiquated runic words formed at the tips of their fingers, filling the clearing with some arcane equation. They sang while they worked, in harmonies both beautiful and ominous. The sun slipped below the horizon, out in the trembling sea. The women rose up, positioned themselves equidistantly around the completed work, and brought their coarsening voices to a shrill crescendo. An abrupt silence followed. Now the women stood, 
panting, three cloaked figures in the deepening darkness. The cloaks had no part in the ritual, save to shield the women from the wind and the cold, but the garments lent their forms a malevolent quality, so that, had anyone passed by at that moment, they would not have failed to recognize them as witches. The eldest nodded at the youngest, who produced from her cloak a black bird, still living but bound in twine from beak to feet. Hey, crow, said the middle sister, for they were sisters in addition to being a coven. Yes, a crow, and we're lucky to have it. Besides, I think it will serve our purposes nicely, under the circumstances. It will do, said the eldest. And so they set about slaying the creature and arranging its wings and feathers in a pattern around a small, man-shaped earthen mound at the center of the occult glyphs. The crow's blood darkened the earth as they took up song once more. The terrible melody went on and on, its rhythm quickening as the witches' voices grew hoarse, so hoarse they sounded like a chorus of grimbles at the end. But at last, the end did come. The earth at the center of the ritual, between where the crow's wings lay at the shoulders of the earthen man, cracked open, pushed upward as if by a tree root. Come forth, cried the eldest, her voice a jagged wail. Rise! The earth yawned wider, and from it emerged a new set of black wings, big enough to support a great beast. They unfolded and shook dirt from their feathers to reveal the form of a man, pale and naked and bent over in the dirt. We bind thee, star-born, said the witches in unison. In the name of Heka, the goddess of our craft, we bind thee. The raven-winged angel lifted his head. His hair was black as the feathers on his back. He looked around at the hooded faces, his eyes lingering finally on the oldest of the three sisters whose stature and poise gave her the bearing of leadership. By Hecka, we bind you. Tell us your true name. The angel stood. My name is... Hmm. Let's say it's Rick. Might I say what a rare pleasure it is to make the acquaintance of such lovely practitioners of the dark arts. The women fell into a stunned silence. So, what's all this then? Rick went on. Last thing I remember, I was enjoying the hot springs of Kurth. The eldest sister clenched her teeth, her cheeks flush with heat. By Hecka, I bind. A sardonic smile teased at the corners of the angel's lips. Why bind me? when you've already charmed me. Wonderful, the middle sister said with a heavy breath. We've summoned a fallen angel. I told you that crow would not do. You said nothing of the sort, said the eldest, who then cleared her throat to address the stranger. We are sorry if we have inconvenienced you, 
Mr. Rick, perhaps we can make it up to you. Rick watched her with dark intensity. Oh, I'm always up for a little adventure, he said. And perhaps I may be of service to you ladies, strictly on a mutually beneficial basis, of course. Yes, the youngest sister put in, composing herself. She caught his gaze and gave him a winsome look. Perhaps service is the wrong word. Partnership would be more appropriate. That's the spirit, said Rick. Now, what can I do for your little coven? He turned to the eldest. She now stood with one arm outstretched, a small silver box in her open palm. Rick's eyes settled on the box. Is that what I think it is? He said in a chilled voice. Yes, said the eldest with stony resolve. Yes, it is. Well, now I'm offended. She smiled in response to this. It needn't be for you, Sir Starborn. Another angel, then. Of course. A sound plan, I must admit, Rick said, stroking his angular chin. Fight fire with fire and ice. I'm glad you like it. So, where can I find this angel? I won't ask what he did to cross you. Why don't I let my sister fill you in on the details? The eldest gestured at the youngest. Jalen, since you brought the crow, it will be your honor to show our guest some of that famous Riley Island hospitality. Part 1. Cephalopod Sign Chapter 1 Woodrow's reputation preceded him. Rumors of a magical airship piloted by a wicked boy who had murdered his family and burned his village were already circulating throughout the South Sea before Woodrow even arrived in the region. The flying vessel was known to be the rightful property of a humble knight from a small island in the Dewey Archipelago, from whence the boy also hailed. They said the crew consisted of three monsters, one a beast, one a metal giant, and the third a demon disguised as an angel of light. Most insidious of all was the boy himself. He had reportedly participated in some dark sacrament, summoning an army of subterranean fiends which brought about the island's destruction on his behalf. When Woodrow came down from the north in his strange vessel, a gleaming vehicle of glass and shining ore, which hung in the sky without aid of either propeller or balloon, and moved with no regard for the direction of the wind, these terrible rumors were all but confirmed. Soon, every port dweller in the south would know the vessel by name, 
though they would only speak that name in hushed tones. The Moon Shadow As for Woodrow, at present, his concern for his reputation or for that of his ship took a back seat to the hollow in his stomach. He sat with his legs dangling from the lowest of the moon shadow's three rare balconies, his fishing line trailing some thirty feet to the ocean surface below. Next to him, Tamberline the Great Cat peered down into the clear water, her green gaze flitting about and her slitted pupils dilating with unmet desire. Woodrow scratched under her tangled mane. They'll start biting sooner or later, he reassured her. But the great cat just shrugged away from him and stalked to the far side of the deck. Woodrow scowled after her. I'm hungry too, you know. In point of fact, Woodrow's last meal had been two and a half days ago, and he wasn't sure he could even feel the hunger anymore. But Tamberline had also gone without, and the boy feared it was only a matter of time before the great cat would start to see him as a potential meal. A seagull landed on the railing just a few feet away. It studied the moonshadow's hull as if it knew the vessel for the marvel of alchemy and engineering that it was. Woodrow's first thought upon seeing the bird was to wonder if Tamberline would prefer to eat it plucked and cooked or simply raw. Tamberline noticed the gull too. She stalked back from her side of the deck, tail flicking about like a gray flame. The gull didn't seem to notice her. It cocked its head to one side, all the more focused on the moon shadow. The great cat went into her pre-pounce wind-up, head low, haunches in the air. She sprang. In response, the gull did something entirely unexpected. It lifted a foot or so off the railing, spread its wings, and spun like a propeller. Woodrow felt a gust toss his hair, and Tamberline hung in midair for a fraction of a second before tumbling backward and skidding across the deck. With a hiss, Tamberline regained her feet, her claws screeching against the deck. The gull had settled back upon the rail to resume its investigation of the ship. Woodrow's eyes flicked from the bird to the cat and back again. The great cat wound up for another pounce. Tam-Tam, no! Woodrow cried. Too late. Tamberline had already sprung. The gall made no noise. It just lifted off again, and then, wings splayed and beak pointed to the sky, it spun in one full rotation. The resultant gust of wind knocked Woodrow against the rail and tossed Tamberline overboard. Woodrow could see his pet falling for an impossibly long time, plunging toward the sea until another rogue gust caught her, held her briefly, and then pushed her away, flailing. Tam-Tam! he called after her, then turned to demand an explanation. Even as the absurdity of such an action occurred to him, he realized the bird was gone. Woodrow studied the white ripple where the great cat had landed but the spot was soon overtaken by a rushing current moving away from the ship. What just happened? He muttered to the sea. Half a minute later, Woodrow rushed into the Moonshadow's bridge, breathing heavily. He charged past Hartford to the helm at the center of the clear glass bubble. Standing on the platform, he looked through the glass at the sea below. Bring her down, he commanded. Tam-Tam's overboard! 
With several snaps and clanks of his metal joints, Hartford's posture went rigid. His eyes, glowing from the shadows of his helmeted head, grew large and round. Don't just sit there, Woodrow told the giant metal golem. This is an emergency. The elongated, jagged stone set in Hartford's broad chest seemed to flare with blue flame, and Woodrow felt as if the floor beneath him had given way. The moon shadow lit into the water, and soon the cockpit was three-quarters submerged. Woodrow squinted about. He scratched the back of his neck, then bolted from the cockpit. The boy emerged upon the open deck to the sound of water lapping against the vessel's flanks. He found the angel exactly as he expected him to be, golden wings folded across his bare back, standing like a silent sentry, seeming to stare at nothing. Woodrow spat on the deck. Hey, Feathers, my cat's overboard. Don't suppose you could, I don't know, fly out there and see if you can find her? The angel turned to look through the boy. He stroked his smooth, square chin. Boy, he addressed him, explain to me this magic behind monetization. Woodrow squinted at the angel. What? Previously, you stated what appears to be an old adage on this mortal sphere. Money is power. What does that mean exactly? Woodrow blinked at the angel several times in disbelief before responding. Can't you see this is an emergency? The angel seemed not to notice the boy's urgency. Would not the acquisition of this money greatly aid us in our sacred quest? Woodrow jabbed a finger at the angel. Your sacred quest? I don't have time for this. Thanks for nothing if you're not going to help me. The angel turned away to resume his vigilance. Later, then, he said, as if the boy had merely declined an invitation for tea. Woodrow spat on the deck again, then stomped back inside. The angel had few virtues, in the boy's view, but patience did seem to be one of them. The cockpit echoed with the metallic sound of Hartford's fingers tapping against his chair's armrests. Woodrow peered out through the glass his eyebrows pressed together. Finally, he threw himself into the big pilot seat. He pulled the altitude lever, and the moon shadow rose up out of the water. He held his head in his hands and stared at his knees until he felt Hartford's heavy palm on his shoulder. He looked up at the golem with red, wet eyes. She's gone, he croaked. The golem raised his head and pointed. Woodrow looked. On the horizon lay an emerald peak. Woodrow rubbed the back of his neck. Hmm, the current took Tam-Tam in that direction. He lowered the goggles sitting on his brow. He wore a gauntlet on his left arm, which he placed over a glass lens set in the armrest on the left-hand side of the pilot seat. That was no normal seagull. How did it... If it sent Tam-Tam to that island, we'd better go have a look. Thanks for listening 
to Lies and Half-Truths. This episode was written and performed by A.P. Weber and produced by Meg Weber. Our theme was provided by Josiah Martins. Original music by Mackenzie Stuppert. Consider liking, sharing, or reviewing this podcast wherever you listen to it. You can also support me, A.P. Weber, on Patreon. In any case, please join us again next time for more lies and half-truths.